0: Welcome to your buzz, rant, and rave podcast. Tonight we're having a pop culture panel, and we're discussing Shameless. My guests are Dan Suter and Amy Watts.
1: Welcome. Hello.
0: So Shameless,
1: should we should we start it off with our standard, um, our greeting? I'm the only one who's seen this. This is my turn. This is my show infliction. So.
0: Yes, this is the uh, the third of, uh, I guess, three where we're each uh, forcing the other two to watch something it's, that they haven't. It's hadn't.
1: a cycle, and uh, this is the, the third piece of the triptych. Uh, <laughs> you forced us to watch The Wire, Andrew, and Amy had us watch The Vampire Diaries. And we had, overall, uh, we had incredibly positive things to say about The Wire, obviously. And um, we we found a lot of merit in The Vampire Diaries between us.
0: So, Uh, So, Dan, have you watched more of The Vampire Diaries since we talked about it? (laughs) I haven't. It's been about a month and a
1: half. Well, it's been about a month and a half, and it's been, like, prime TV season. Justified started up. Uh, The Walking Dead had its stretch run, Um, and I got really busy with other TV. The Vampire Diaries is something that I would probably pick up over the summer, if anything. I still haven't watched uh, the entire – fifth season of chuck yet which is sitting on a hard drive waiting and i haven't seen any fringe and i love that show so those are I, I have two full seasons of shows that i haven't even gotten to yet before i would even consider the vampire diaries but i did did really enjoy the vampire diaries
0: i'm kind of in the same boat where it's still in my Netflix queue But I haven't gone back to watch any yet because I've been really behind on other TV that I'd like to watch more, such as Justified.
1: I may refuse to watch it, uh, except with uh, my friend Russ's girlfriend, who I watched those three episodes with, because it's been so long since I've watched it that I don't. I would need to like watch all the episodes I saw again just to refresh myself. It you know, so much plot that I went in one year and out the other. But Shameless now, Shameless is. Not um, Showtime's first big show. That would be Dexter. But it's probably the show that people are liking the most on Showtime these days now that United States of Terror is gone. Uh,
0: Aside maybe from Homeland. Oh,
1: I you know what? I totally forgot Homeland. I'm sorry. Homeland is the clear critical hit. But I think uh, I could be wrong, but I feel like Shameless is doing better ratings. Although I, I'll double check on that. But I, I feel like it's more of a populist hit than homeland um so you got shameless's
2: debut had the highest uh, i was looking on wikipedia it had something like the highest uh debut since some other big showtime show so it's been a success for them here it's saying the best performing first year drama on showtime and one of the reasons that i had avoided watching shameless was because i thought it was supposed to be a comedy but I thought it was going to be a comedy in that sort of nurse Jackie, yeah, sure you'll laugh at this kind of comedy way, and so it... that's why I had ignored it.
1: Let's let's lead off with some 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 shading about the show. It's an adaptation of a British show, Shameless, which I believe is now in its eighth or ninth series. If we're using the English terminology, so that's
0: been, so that's been about what five or six episodes, <laughs> something total? like
1: that. It's about it's about forty minutes of actual show in England. Um... But the it's it's a British it's based on a British series about a lower class family. The American series about a lower class family. We're talking dirt poverty in uh, the Projects of Chicago, um, and you know they sort of they got a the absentee mom and a drunk.
0: Well, t- just to just to Nick pitt it's not the Projects it's of Chicago. Not, oh, it's
1: not. Pardon me, it's not Projects. It's, it's the it's in Chicago. It's, a crappy neighborhood. it's
0: definitely a. Not a wealthy neighborhood. It but could it's be subsidized
2: housing, but it's not what I it, think of as the project.
1: It's. I don't think it's. It's not at You're right. It's not Project Towers. Sorry, I've never lived in a city that really has projects. I. So it's a catch-all term for, whitey-white New Hampshire folks. But it's <laughs> um, it's a, uh, and it's about this kind of hard scrabble. Pick your adjective. I want to know right now. You guys each can pick like one adjective to abuse. Mine's gonna be hard scrabble. Um, <laughs> acceptable options are. I'll
0: go with down on their luck.
1: Acceptable, acceptable alternatives are blue collar, uh, gritty, uh, scruffy.
0: <laughs> I don't think blue collar actually. No, they're no here. collar. I they're think... no
1: collar. That's
2: exactly what the showrunners. <laughs> yeah, like
0: Roseanne. Yeah, Roseanne is really the last. Well, maybe at least the last popular blue collar show where they worked until like the last season where it all went wacky, where they worked in the factories or in a, in the a middle diner. on ABC and
2: right now is like that. Cause class, you've got so. dad in a quarry and mom at a used car dealership.
1: I actually, but I actually think that this is sort of in the spirit of that people getting by without a lot. Um, if it doesn't quite necessarily always have the heart that Roseanne could summon, but basically it's this big family. The There's a, played by William H. Macy, who's basically a drunk and a grifter and can't be counted on for anything. Um, The mom's out of the picture, at least in the first season. Um, So they're all being raised by 21-year-old Fiona, uh, Emmy Rossum, who's taking care of one, two, three, four, five kids uh, of various ages and bents. And it's kind of just their day-to-day life. Um, And it's it's really, really... uh, Well, I want to know, what overall... Broad strokes. You guys like the show? Enjoy the show?
0: Definitely. And I think one of the things that I found so interesting about it is the tone. It's not really a drama. It's not really a comedy. I actually kind of expected it to be a half-hour show. when uh, I kind of read the summary, and then I sat down to watch it, and I was surprised to see it clock in at 48, 50 minutes, whatever it is. And it's really got this tone that's unlike anything else really on tv it's really really a very dark dark comedy
1: amy what did what did you think
2: um uh you know honestly i'm not sure if i like it yet or not but i mean i want to watch more of it i mean because i think part of the problem is with only we watched four episodes out of the first what eight
1: uh uh they're they're 12 episode seasons but i mean like we went as far
2: as episode eight
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I think we went as far as episode eight. Or, and, yeah, eight. I'm sorry.
2: And so there were some things in there I missed, and there's some things that I'm kind of curious how they're going to develop. And it's like I feel like with just watching four episodes, I kind of got a taste. And yeah, well, I sort of, it, in a weird way, I would almost compare it to like if we'd only watch, say, the first hour or two of The Wire. You well, know, I and you're kind of like, okay, where's this going to start
1: clicking? Let me let me get into the sausage-making of what I did. Andrew, when and he had us watch The Wire, he had an easy job. He just had us watch the first five episodes. You, with the Vampire Diaries, had to curate for us a little bit. And you specifically said you picked some one episode that would give us a good intro to the world and then two episodes that were a good self-contained arc. I realized when I went back like a month and a half ago or a month ago to figure out how I wanted to do this with you guys that... Shameless, much in the way that the Gallagher's lives are messy, the show is really messy. And I realized that there weren't any, like, arcs that I really wanted to explore. So I just, I tried, to, I gave you guys the pilot to sort of, one, one to give you the intro to the world, but also because the pilot is not a great episode, um, mm. to give you guys kind of the growth of of the it does a good job of establishing the world and they don't change up many of the characters from the pilot, but I don't think the pilot is in and of itself great. Um, it's fine. Uh, but I wanted to show you kind of the direction they're going and that I, I really like the creative team behind this show and that they're doing a, a bang up job of fixing stuff on the fly. And then I also just wanted to give you a couple episodes that had my favorite sort of standalone stories or stories that actually build and sort of inform other stuff the show does. So that was my metagaming, (laughs) but I want to get back to the tone issue. Um, do you guys think this is a dark comedy or like a comedic black drama?
2: I would call it more of a comedic drama than a dramatic comedy. Um, Because even though it has a lot of really outrageous, funny moments, I think they do a really good job, especially with Fiona's character, of never letting you get too far away from the fact that this is poverty. This is day-to-day, hand-to-mouth living. And, you know, that, to me, makes it hard to think of it entirely as a comedy.
0: And actually, that's why I would call it a black comedy, because it's not... It's a funny show to an extent, but it uses the humor to really underlie that fact that at the core of it, this is a show about poverty and poverty as systemic in America today, that there are lots of people just scraping by in this way. And it's not funny to people who are living it. It's not anything else other than life. And but it uses comedy to come to that. Uh point, which I think is kind of the exact definition of black comedy i
1: what I would say is I would actually call it a i would call it a black comedy, but I'm also somebody who believes that the best dramatic actors are usually comedians um i because I think comedy is kind of inherent to life, but I also like the wire the wire is a funny show. But it doesn't try like there's you don't see the effort, whereas in Shameless, you can see them setting up set pieces that the whole point is to make you laugh. And but I also think that there's a spirit of like these people live really kind of hard lives. And sometimes the only way to get around that is just by laughing at everything. And I know a lot of people like that. And I don't I don't want to say I identify with a lot of the stuff in this show because I grew up like middle of the road, middle class. But there have been times when, you know, my dad was laid off or between jobs, and or I've known people who are much less fortunate than I have. And, you know, my extended family is very much sort of like this, um, if not as criminal as the Gallaghers. <laughs> so I, I can identify with a lot of it. Um, but getting back to Emmy Rossum now, she's been the big one getting the most juice out of Shameless. And the phrases they always use, the words they always use to describe her performance are, like, brave and courageous and fearless. And do you buy that? Do you you buy that? That, to me, is, like, I'm just going to lay it out.
2: Whenever I hear that an an actress's performance is brave, I figure she is either A, ugly, or B, topless. (laughs) I mean, mean, seriously, like, we talked about Charlize Theron and Halle Berry's performances being brave, you know? Nicole Kidman puts on an ugly nose and she's brave. Or Kate Winslet drops her knickers in there. She's brave. So yeah,
1: um, I <laughs> and I on that saying? point,
2: I have a question for you. Yeah. Since you've seen all the whole season,
1: right? I, I've seen every episode. Does so Emmy far.
2: Rossum bear her breasts in every episode, or just in the four that you picked for us to watch?
1: Ooh, I I think I I know she did it a fair amount in the first season. I think it might have been wins. I I know they. I think it was mostly the episodes I picked, though that wasn't why I picked them. I didn't uh-huh. think about that that much. Sure, it wasn't. They, I think she reworked her nudity clause in the second season. I don't think she's been totally topless in the whole second season. I really, I really don't think she has been. And if she has been, I'm so inured to it at this point. Like, I, I you know, I to me, I don't buy the brave, courageous, fearless thing. I think it's brazen. But I don't think it's brave because when you look like Emmy Rossum, it doesn't take any bravery to get naked. <laughs> like w- w- when you look like Emmy Rossum does, it's not brave. It's just good advertising.
2: Well, it's brave in the sense that I mean, up until here, up until the show, she'd really kind of been the doe-eyed ingenue. I think a lot, right? Oh, she
1: hadn't done anything. She hadn't done. She was, anything wasn't she in no-
2: Phantom of the Opera?
1: She was in Dragon Ball Z, the movie, with with Steve, see, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Shameless is a reunion for her and Justin Chatwin, who uh, were in the Dragon Ball Z movie. No, you're right. She was in uh, The Day After Tomorrow and The Phantom of the Opera. So, well, and in Famb- River, Phantom apparently. of the
2: Opera, that character's supposed to be very young and innocent. And, you know, like, because I read Go Fug Yourself, where they're always talking about fashion, and she certainly did the red carpet a lot for that, and then afterwards... And she always presented herself as being almost like demure and, you know, like I say, the ingenue. And so to suddenly put herself in a position where, I mean, in this modern age, the problem with doing nudity is that it will never, ever go away.
1: Oh, and in the last, I think it's changed in the last two years with the animated gifification of the internet. Like, if you're nude, not only are you on the internet, you're in animated GIF form for everyone to enjoy. And so in that so, way,
2: I wouldn't necessarily say that it's brave, but y- you are doing something that you can't take back.
1: Yeah, but also, when you look like Emmy Rossum, when you're 25, like, you know, you're never going to look better. Like, <laughs> but
2: someday she, she will have a kid who will go on the internet, and, and... <laughs> there it'll be.
1: Unless she's got creepy Ellen, Ellen uh, Barkin jeans, she's never going to look better. And I don't know, I don't think it's, and to be fair, this made her a star. Like, you, this show has boosted her profile a thousand percent. So, I think it's sort of much like, uh, I don't know, I can't think of a good, another good example of it. But it's it's been a very, it was a very good move, I think. Because also in the second season, I think she's been coasting on her first season nudity. I don't think she's been totally <laughs> nude the second season but
2: the way in which i would think that her performance is actually kind of brave is that i like that fiona is clearly a a sexualized young woman and yet i don't feel like we're ever led to believe that she her. is a slut
0: yeah well i think i think what makes the performance you could describe it as brave is that she's willing to go topless and willing to be a sexual character uh, and yet that's not what defines i think going without makeup
1: is more brave than (laughs) than going topless they they let her they really do let her look like baggy eyed and haggard and and her acting was pretty good from the beginning although they made they've dropped her chicago accent her bad chicago accent down like 20 percent, which has really helped her I, I don't know if you guys noticed that from, like, the pilot to episode 8, but they brought her accent way down. Mm. Um, yeah, and But do you buy it? Do but, you, When she's getting all tough girl and dudes' faces, do you buy that? And does that, like, brashness work for you? I,
0: I think it definitely—the character is very believable. And I think her performance is, is fine in it. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about the show as a whole— is kind of the credits are very misleading. That uh, William H. Macy is the, the lead character, the lead uh, credit, but...
1: Uh, it's her show.
0: Emmy uh, Rossum's character, Fiona, is really well, the Well, that lead was character. something I, wanna... I noticed about the Mace... pilot,
2: was how long it took before you even
1: meet got Fiona, much really. of a scene oh,
2: with William no, H. Macy. No, before
1: you even meet... Uh, well, I want to yeah. jump into that. So we've been discussing the show in broad strokes. We can circle back to some greater points as we go through the episodes, but let's dive into the pilot. Now, that first opening scene where they're sort of hanging out by the, like, fire, that, you know, that's a, a weird – to me, that's weird. And I get why they did it because they're trying to make this a commercial show, but they, like n- – they barely use voice. I don't think they use voiceover – more than one or two other times after that. And it's usually while they're showing you other scenes happening. And you get Frank narrating and talking in sort of warm tones about his family. And you never get that in the show. You get that, like, once or twice a season. So did you guys think that first scene was, like, out of character for the show?
0: I think it was a great misdirection because it was so out of character. That it – just coming into it knowing that, okay – William H. Mochi is the the star of the show. Here he is narrating it. Um, He's talking about his family and how they're all so great together. And you don't see him again until, like, the third act of the show. Until It has to be almost half an hour into the first episode, into the pilot, before he is on camera again. And it's a great—it really undercuts your expectations of what the show is and gives it a chance to kind of surprise you, even if it's not— Different. Well,
2: if I can be all um, arty-farty for a second, I mean, it's it's matching the theme of the show, which is that Frank would tell you he is the star of this family. He is yeah. the center of this family. And yet, in reality, he's so not. He's a prop. And and I think the, the, it's nice that the show sort of build out, built out that theme in the and way they deploy him. And then just pulls it him. out from
1: under you. And then just pulls it out from under you.
0: His first scene is where he pretty much falls face flat yeah. onto the well, floor I, when he's brought I by can't the
1: take this observation to be my own. This is a and Wall Dan Feinberg uh, thing from when they discussed the show like a year or two years ago, whenever it was first on. Um, that Frank is basically... One, they didn't love Frank's performance at the beginning of the series. I think I felt a little differently, but or they they didn't mind the performance they didn't like the way he was used and but the other thing is he's basically a prop in the pilot they spend more yeah. time dragging him around and falling over him and throwing stuff in his mouth than than actually dealing with him
2: well i said and, um i said do none of these loving enabling caring children know the recovery position i mean it really bothered <laughs> me how often they leave frank on his back
0: yeah i thought that too where where they we even propped in his back to uh, choke on his you, own vomit. Now,
1: now, Maybe getting, that's to, getting to getting, could well getting be. to William H. Macy. Do you like this performance? Do you, or you don't? Do you, is this a good? I wrote in my notes: Is it a good (in parentheses) or effective performance? Or does Frank work for you? And then, is it a good performance regardless of your answer?
2: He does work for me, and I'll tell you, one William Macy is so charming and endearing. Just that's something in his screen presence that even in, like, even in Fargo, where he plays such a despicable character, there's still yeah. something about you that kind of wants to reach through the screen and, and just, like, sort of make it better for him. And I think that is a key component to this Frank Gallagher character. I mean, he's not by any means a mean drunk. You know, he's an affable drunk. And Ooh, that's there, why his I wouldn't say that.
1: Uh, and I'm going to say that this is an unspoilable show because a point I'll make later. I don't think they're, I believe in spoilers at one point he gets drunk and just hauls off and punches Ian in the face. And that's, he can be incredibly cruel when he's drunk. Okay. Um, I but haven't I think, seen that yet. Yeah. I think part of Frank is that he's wildly inconsistent and that they mm. don't know what they're getting from it. He's not normally a violent drunk, but he's, He's mostly self-destructive, and I think that's the one thing that keeps – the character does really bad things, but I think for the most part, I-, I think that the only thing that keeps the character even bearable is that most of the pain falls on himself, although he gets the family in financial trouble constantly.
0: Um... I'm not sure that most of the pain falls necessarily on himself, just in terms of that – the kids have developed this whole support network amongst themselves to compensate for his lack of parenting yes. or his lack of functioning.
1: And is there – I the other thing I wanted to ask, and I actually like the Frank performance. I think it gets – he – in season two, they start deploying him a little better. And he's good in the end of se- second half of the first season. But by the season two, they're really using him well. And I, But I wanted to know, is there anyone else you think could have actually pulled this role off, this really – despicable guy but you sort of you don't really know why every once in a while you see a hint like in episode eight you see a hint of why people have not murdered this guy in his sleep but it's mostly william h macy's general lovableness that keeps you from well, hating well, can, frank
0: well considering what i just read on imdb earlier uh there were i think that they were originally considering Woody harrelson for the part and i think he would have been a perfect uh frank for that Cause he has that same kind of charisma and can be, you know, just that little bit unhinged too, like in uh, *Zombieland* or I, I assume in *The Hunger Games*. Yeah. I haven't well, seen or yet, you go but, back
2: to when he was Woody on *Cheers*, and yeah, I mean, what a sweetheart.
1: But I, the thing I, I like about Frank is that he really looks. Uh, Macy looks the part. Like he's sort of this squirrely. Like he's a skinny guy. He's squirrely. He's kind of got this craggy face. And I, I.
2: Well, I think if I skip. Harrelson
1: I, looks a little too foreboding.
2: If I skip ahead a couple episodes, there's one part where Frank is running after a like he's running to get away from some guys, and he's running yeah. through the streets, and he eventually catches onto a, a garbage truck and. A skateboard. Yeah, he's on a skateboard and catches onto a garbage truck. And William H Macy running in that scene totally reminded me of the kind of like those those little scrappy guys that you know you think they're a drunk, and then suddenly they get into a corner. And I mean, like he's not carrying a spare ounce on his body and so he can move that body fast when he really needs to
1: his physical comedy through the series frank is probably of all the recurring characters he's probably the most cartoonish character and that's i think a word i'm going to use like 80 times this podcast is cartoonish because the show bounces along the realistic cartoon spectrum but he really is a very good human cartoon character. Just his facial expressions sometimes. I'm surprised there's not a Tumblr that isn't FacesOfFrankGallagher.tumblr.com <laughs> uh, because he's a very good physical comedian. And uh, they, they use it sparingly. They don't constantly have Frank getting thrown around. But some just the way he moves sometimes. Like, he's snuck out of Sheila's house, like I think, like, five times throughout the series. And every time he does it, it's just a little... Like a comic play in one act um, and, and jumping back into the pilot, like the other the scene that charmed me the first time I was watching it is just that the first real scene of the series, not the sort of prologue where Frank's narrating, but when they're going around the table like collecting money to pay like the electric bill, mm. and it's just like you you just had this Frank narration where he's like telling you who all the characters are, but this is like showing you who all the characters are and it's like, oh, you know, oh, uh, Lip is going to go do some SAT tests for people and I'm working at the, the convenience store and Ian is and that sort of thing. And it, I I thought that was a very good scene in that it just sort of has the characters breezing in and out of the scene. And that's something the show does really well is um, yeah. play with character pairings. But they get away with having characters just show up whenever they want because of how sprawling and messy the Gallagher extended clan is.
0: And I should say, I really did love that first scene of the uh, of the episode where just because through the camera work, it really felt like it was moving well and it was exciting, even if it was just going around the table expo- uh, giving you exposition, introducing each of the characters and uh, just well done. <laughs> applause. Now, the there was
2: some weird camera work in episode one that maybe you guys need to explain to me. It just went right over my head. What was up with the slow-motion apple drop?
1: Uh, When was that?
2: Well, I mean, the point of the scene is that Joel Morey's going to discover what his daughter's doing under the table. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, like, the way that we watched the apple drop, and then so carefully the apple landed, and it was trying to decide whether it was going to be on one side of the carpet or on the other carpeting, and I was sitting there thinking, wait a minute, does mom have a rule about food can't leave the kitchen? And if I, it lands on that side of the carpet, it's out of the kitchen. And I mean, like, I, I got I the actually, slow-mo for it, the reveal of the girl under the table, but why did we care so much about the apple?
1: I, I have a note. It's literally the last note on my page, but I, I was wanted to mention it earlier um, than that, is the show does a good job of kind of capturing the weird claustrophobia of living in crappy old houses. And part of that is they do a lot of wonky camera angles, and they do a lot of weird side-by-side shots or slow-motioning stuff. And it—it's a little—I—I I like it. It's—it's it's seemingly at random sometimes, but it's sort of—it's funny in that it's almost has no place and isn't important, but they do it anyway.
2: Well, like the—the—they continued the slow mo. With dad reaching down to pick up the apple and discovering the daughter. And I understood the slow-mo there and why that was going to work for comedic effect. But
0: I I I swear, it takes I don't think it's necessarily even comedic effect. That's
2: like the most significant apple drop outside of Times Square.
1: (laughs) Well, it's like how the... It's so like when you're a kid and like it's... I just think it's a little dramatic. It's like the dramatic tension of it, but then it's something dumb like an apple drop that's going to blow up an entire family really for the entire series. That, that one apple drop kind of blows up that, not a spoiler to say it blows up that family for the entire series. The one thing you guys didn't totally get, I don't think was Joel Murray's character is kind of a thankless character. Um, Joel Murray played, uh, played Freddie Rumson more famously in, uh, in Mad Men, but Um, he's kind of good as Eddie Jackson, but it's a really thankless role where he kind of has to be hateful and they go some really dark places with him at the end of the season that you didn't guys didn't get to see, but he has his own little tics. Like you guys didn't get a good explanation of it, but he has this weird clown, not a sexual fetish, but just a fetish in general. Like the stuff he was carrying out of the house when he left is all his like clown collectibles. Like, and he's a really like conservative, Dad, it's a thankless role, but he's kind of good in it. Um, but uh, and so that brings us to Joan Cusack. Um, what did you guys think of Sheila?
2: Well, I'm a little bit biased because I I have always always loved Joan Cusack, and it's pretty hard for me to ever think she does anything wrong. But I really like what I, she's doing.
1: <laughs> I'm. I,
0: I I feel really, like I I agree. I really like what she's doing. I don't love the character. Yeah, it's very heavy-handed. It's very. Uh...
1: I I made a mistake earlier when I said that Frank was the most cartoonish character. He's the most cartoonish star of the show, like core character. Sheila is from a different show at times to me. Uh, she there are times where she fits in, and I think they do a better job with her in the second season, like with everything. Yeah. But
2: uh, when well, we she, talk about she's, yeah, one of the later episodes. She had a moment, she had a scene in one of the later episodes that I really liked. Um, Is it the
1: scene where she dances? No. Okay, good, because I hate that scene. Okay,
0: uh, just before we go on further, uh, have we talked about which four episodes we watched here? No,
1: we haven't. We watched the pilot, season one, episode one, Uh, then we called pilot, then we watched season one, episode three, named Aunt Ginger, Uh, season one, episode six, Killer Carl, and season one, episode eight, It's Time to Kill the Turtle. Uh we're currently talking about the pilot, although we're tying in a lot of um general show notes into it.
0: Well, since we have talked about multiple episodes that we've we've watched, it's just a good idea to have that uh, on the background in case anyone has made it to this point <laughs> and is still listening. In which case, thank you. Uh if you've made it this far, you win a prize. Be careful so, about that. <laughs> actually
1: you should you know, you can do what uh, Joe Posnanski does and says, Hey, tweet out this hashtag at me and uh Make something worth their while. I don't know.
0: Yeah, if you've made it this far, I will uh, send you a uh, free MP3.
1: <laughs> you can you can give it to your friends. Not of this podcast. No, it'll be a totally different MP3.
0: A totally different MP3 song. The, uh,
1: <laughs> send them a send him an MP3 of uh, the theme song of. Uh, I forget.
0: Well, that I don't have the right oh. to shoot, but I'll. Uh, Put together something. Uh, so email me at andrew at buzzrantrave.com or uh, hit me up on Twitter at Andrew Raff. So and with the hashtag uh, shameless begging.
1: <laughs> shameless begging. Shameless self-promotion. There you go. <laughs>
0: shameless self-promotion, even better.
1: Either or. Um, so pilot, characters. Let's I want to get into the the youngest the youngest Gallagher's the 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 four if we're including Liam as a character and not as a prop, the youngest, uh, the youngest five Gallagher's. Um, what Ian and let's start with Ian and Lip. Now the pilot has a pretty, pretty fantastic subplot, I think, between Ian and Lip, and I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on that. Oh, there, there's oh. not more. No, I wanted to get you guys' thoughts.
0: Well, that was a subplot. <laughs> right? um,
1: well, um, I was going to let you guys do do some exposition for a change. I've been doing a lot of exposition. Um, I'll I'll do exposition.
0: I have to. I, I will say I did find it somewhat difficult to keep track of all the characters in the okay. beginning. Uh, as uh, not necessarily all the, at the beginning, but uh, Eden and Lip, I found were the two hardest characters that I didn't really get their names yes. straight until uh, the third or fourth episode. Yeah. Uh, in two in two hours. One because uh, they're both very close in age and uh well that's probably the biggest one because the characters are are very different uh as was revealed uh Ian kind of comes out of the closet to his his brother Lew. Yep. Well he, uh, in 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 the We should the say that or, or Lip, Lip is Lip, a
1: junior uh, in high school um incredibly brilliant, super smart. Um Ian is a he's in the ROTC. He's sort of a uh, um but he is clo- he's a closeted uh, gay man or boy or whatever he is. I think he's a sophomore. Teenage they never old. really i they probably mention how old he is, but I'm pretty sure he's a sophomore. Um, but so I really like the character dynamic between the two, and especially in that plot. Like, I they, it's sort of compressed because it's the pilot, but I think they do a good job of like lip sort of coming to grips with it, but then just sort of being like, well, he's my brother and I don't have many other people, so I'm just going to support him through this.
0: Well, I, I think it also shows one of the characters of Lip is a character, one of the reasons I, I find him one of the the more relatable characters is that he's kind of one of the better people in this family.
1: He's... Lip? Well, Lip Lip does some not so great things. Was it? <laughs> I find him
2: very abrasive, yeah.
1: Lip. He, he also is sort of um, not great He doesn't necessarily treat, uh, oh, I'm blanking on her name, Karen well. He doesn't necessarily treat Karen all that great. Like, he's nice to her, but he sort of holds her at a distance when that's, I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's not really a very positive relationship there. Uh, Definitely not. But uh, compared to, uh, well, I think on the spectrum of (laughs) despicability—
1: Except for Fiona, Fiona's fine. She's she's the best person on the show. But anyway, on the spectrum of despicability, what, are you are you gonna do power rankings? Are you gonna do despicability power rankings?
2: Oh, let's not.
1: <laughs> and uh, Lip is also. I do think we see there in one of the episodes we watched later. Um, Lip takes a beating for Ian, and I that to me the scene he has a scene. Uh, well, a we know at this point that Ian is gay, but he doesn't sleep with a girl, and then that girl feels rejected, so she six six her extended clan of brothers on the Gallaghers on Ian, and then Lip takes a beating for Ian. And I thought that was like a really good moment of like, you know, well, he's my brother. You know, it's sort of a he's not heavy, he's my brother moment. And it, but it was it was in it in Shameless's unique dark comic way.
0: Yeah, and that was kind of the scene that I I found one of the the ones where he is com, comes across as more appealing as a character that he's redeemable that he's his heart is generally uh,
1: positive. And uh, the other thing is like. The show isn't, for for as believable as some aspects of the show are, it's really unbelievable in other aspects. Like, if Lip is a guy who's going to get a 2400 on his SATs, and a professor is going to ask him to take classes at University of Chicago halfway through his junior year of high school, you got to think he'd be able to get an academic scholarship somewhere. And, like, to have him be just that brilliant, I think is a little too on the nose, which is something Shameless can do from time to time. But you know, that is this is a character type that's been played a lot before, of the super smart guy from the wrong side of the tracks, your your um oh, what's the how do you like them apples, that movie. The uh, Goodwill hunting, stuff like that. But, you know. Oh, is it Goodwill Hunting where one of those guys is super smart? Yeah. But from the wrong side of the tracks? Yes. I've I've never seen it. So Uh, I I think it can be a little on the nose in that, but I actually really like Lip a lot. He gets a lot of the show's better comic moments, I think.
0: To some extent, is the voice of reason. Even while he's being roped into the family plans or uh, making his own schemes, he's also kind of narrating the other things going on. He
1: does do a lot of commenting on the goings-on.
2: My my problem with him is, though... um... I mean, he's fine for the setting that he's in, and he's fine for his family and all that. But a lot of times when I'm asking myself whether I like a character, sometimes it comes down to, is this a character that I would want to hang out with? And no, I would punch lip in the face routinely. <laughs>
0: uh, so who f- who from the Gallagher extended clan would you want to hang out with?
2: Well, uh, Ian seems like a softie, and... Honestly, I think Fiona and Frank. I mean, Fiona would be Frank would be a good
1: party. <laughs> well, you that's have to the watch thing, I mean, and
2: I, a lot of the Frank thing come does come down to you know just the general likability of William H Macy. But I mean, you know, yeah, Frank's gonna be William William a lot Macy, of fun to hang out with. Frank.
1: Um, I I would probably hang out with Fiona. Um, I would probably hang out with Lip because I Lip is sort of smarmy and a little douchey, but he's really funny, and uh, that counts for a lot for me. And he sort of does a lot of smirking at his surroundings, even as he sort of, he knows the life he's living, but, uh, like, that monologue of the professor guy, I don't know the actor's name, gives, where he's like, oh, you're really smart, you're gonna get her knocked up, you're gonna wind up working at Best Buy, and you get promoted to manager, like, and he just sort of smirks through that whole thing, he's, like, he sort of knows it's true, but he also kind of doesn't care.
2: Well, see, to me, he comes across as having a huge chip on his shoulder, and that's just not something I abide in anybody you know, either either own up to it or, rec- you know, either reconcile yourself to where you are or change it. But walking around with a chip on your shoulder, I have no interest in you.
1: And I agree that there's a lot of... All of these characters have flaws, but I, um, I, I actually enjoy that about him a little bit. I feel that, you know, it's not necessarily a redeeming character trait, but it's a character trait that I think is they're really true to it throughout the series and mm. they kind of don't deviate from it all that much. Um, especially second season. I know I keep going second season, but the, the second season's about to wrap up, you know, tonight in like three hours or something like that. So, and I, so I've been thinking about it a lot, but uh, other stuff from the pilot episode, did any of the dialogue really make you like roll your eyes? Like I did. Like it did me, I should say. Like some of the eye-rollingly Harlequin dialogue. Mostly between Steve and Fiona.
2: No. I mean, I watched The Vampire Diaries. Whatever.
0: (laughs) I have to say, it didn't jump out at me. Um, I I wasn't particularly distracted watching the first episode. I was uh, doing some other things while watching the second episode of this. But, uh, I don't recall being, uh, i I
1: transcribed, annoyed I, I transcribed so much by one that. particular quote. Um, and it's sort of towards the end of the episode and there's been some push pull between Steve and Fiona. And then he calls her and gives this terrible monologue where it's like, says, and I have it word for word here. I rewound it like three times ooh, to get ooh, it right. A
2: dramatic recitation from Dan Suter.
1: You dance like there's no one else in the room. Your life's not simple, Fiona. You're not lost. You don't need finding. This whole city belongs to the Jennas, but I'm sick of them. I swear, Fiona, you're like nothing I've. You're nothing like anyone I've ever met. You make me want to enjoy my life again, and then I hurl. It's so on the nose. Did you
2: say that? Terrible. And then I hurl. Do you want to, do that, it, do,
1: you you want to
0: do that again to, to give a better reading? Wait, what? Where you don't stumble? Do you in want the me
1: to go again? I can. I can put on my like. <laughs> I can put on like my faux. I can put on my faux narrator voice and do it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, that was definitely one of the points where Ugh. it uh, it came. Uh, this is a pilot; we're telling you things about the character, and I have to say, in that first episode, uh, I found Steve just such an unappealing. Well, character. I was
2: afraid, and i sent I sent you guys out the link about the the person ranting about nice guys.
1: Yeah, and
2: I was afraid that they were turning Steve into that "quote unquote" nice guy. But the nice guy allayed? who is really not a nice guy, you know, who Were your
1: fears are <laughs> Well,
2: like who is under the guise of being a nice guy going to tell you how you should live your life and what you should feel about yourself and what you should feel about him and what you should expect from other people. And I mean, in a weird way, sometimes the guys that are I'm a nice guy. I don't know why women like jerks. I mean, I was really afraid that Steve was setting up to be that kind of nice guy. No. <laughs> and in later episodes, they they dialed that back. So I think some of what you're calling Harlequin dialogue to me read as, "Oh, good, here's another man that's going to help a woman validate her self worth. How lovely."
1: Um, the the show gets better about pairing a lot of that purpley prose out. Although they still do a lot of soapy sort of "we can't be together now" things, but. It's, you know, that's the nature. There's push-pull. It's not like it's unrequited sexual tension, because they requite it quite a bit. Oh, Um, they requite
2: it in that kitchen, and it almost, oh, I wanted to go shower. That kitchen was so filthy, and they were getting so naked, and it was just, oh, God. That's one of
1: my favorite things about this show. The set dressers for this show deserve an Emmy. These houses look lived in, and this is another, I'm going to call back Star Wars, this is a lived-in world. It, it's yeah. really, really gross at times, and it's that neighborhood is my like third favorite character on the show. And <laughs> the winter, t- the wintertime setting, is so perfect. The frigid, everyone's just trying to get inside. Like it, everyone's miserable. They're stuck inside, and the heating bills are killing everyone. And I really love that. And in the and yeah. they do a really smart thing. The second season is all in the summertime, basically like the brunt of the season is in the second is in the summer so it's that whole other set of problems of being poor they had being poor in the city during the winter and then they had it being poor during the summer which is even probably worse
0: and that's the great one of the great things about shooting on location is that you feel like you're in chicago here it's not like the good wife where they shoot in new york chicago prayed by
1: new york Now, do they actually shoot this on location i have no clue i haven't done any logistical research it said the the
2: exteriors are shot in chicago and on imdb it lists two. um it lists burbank and chicago as the filming locations
1: yeah the interior of that house is consistent though like they do a good job of not warping the reality of that house of the gallagher house it's you can sort of get the feel for the layout of the house by after a couple of episodes.
0: Yeah, it doesn't. It even if it is filmed on the sound stage, it doesn't feel sound stagey. It doesn't feel well, but fake. like I
2: think all the and things of running through the streets and like certainly in the pilot episode where you have train platforms and things like that, I, I'm I'm guessing that was all done in
1: Chicago.
0: Yeah, all that stuff has to have been done in Chicago and. The, and you can tell that the actors were actually there and it wasn't. Oh, just you can
1: tell because when the, the show does green screen, screen they do it really bad. <laughs> they do it really poorly. I don't know Like, like
0: justified driving oh, the car was uh,
1: Did you were you paying attention in like the last episode when the lip was being hung out the window?
2: Oh yeah, that was not that was yes. green. That was maybe screen. the worst yeah.
1: green screen. You could see the green, like you could see like a good like five pixel range of and then when uh Lip jumps out of a window in the first episode, it's a little better, but it's blatantly a still image of the house. Like I think it was probably a pickup shot, like done after principal photography was over.
2: Well that's it that's probably lending credence to the idea that the house is a set in Burbank. Yeah, and so that's why they have to green screen the outdoors so you don't see the, the palm trees.
1: <laughs> I feel like the, this show is really, I think, made for about ten dollars. So, <laughs> uh, but they don't do a lot of special effects, which I think is smart. They they really keep it low maintenance there, and uh,
0: I I don't I really don't feel like the quality of the show. Feels no, cheap. it doesn't feel and cheap. One, it doesn't. One, it does. It
1: doesn't look that. It they just limit one, the number of sets cast. they're
2: using, and that's fine. I mean, you've but, got it, the but house, that also the makes bar, sense. you've got Sheila's house.
1: It makes sense though but because these are poor people. They can't afford to go to coffee shops and restaurants, and uh, they can't.
0: And, and it it feels real to their lives because we're seeing them at home. We're not seeing them out and about. It's not like when they're going out, they're always going to the same bar or the same coffee shop, or well, other
1: than uh, the alibi room, other than the the dive bar that Frank's. You spend a fair amount of time there, actually.
0: But but again, it's it one. seems very real that Frank would be going to that bar would just just be going to the alibi room because they give him credit
1: it's also right around the corner that's where he he it's local yeah in the second in uh, in, this there is a point where you get to see kind of an overhead map not in these episodes but it's a very small neighborhood it's maybe a couple of blocks that they're in um so okay
0: so just quickly speaking of bars more despicable frank frank gallagher from shameless or frank reynolds from it's always sunny in philadelphia
1: (laughs) um I'm going to say Frank Reynolds because he like took his kids inheritance and like didn't give it to them. And he's done a lot of like really, I think Frank's damage is limited by the fact that he's a real person. And Frank Reynolds is a, is an, a for an id spirit. He's like a, he's like sort of a, a, a demigod of comedic destruction.
0: Yeah. And, And always. Always saying doesn't even attempt to be human, realistic. Nope.
1: It's a, uh, it's
0: very much a heightened artificial reality. I think reality. there are parallels so... between
1: the show. Like this show can get very heightened. I have you got. I, I specifically chose these episodes because I thought they skewed a little closer to the to the groove I like the show in. But I have a rule about guns in that the more guns there are in an episode of Shameless, the worse of an episode it is because the guns get used fairly okay in the first season, but there's points at the second season where like this, the Milkovich family basically pulls out like assault rifles and I'm like, oh, okay, that's enough for me. You know?
0: Well, were they on the wall in the first season?
1: Um, I don't know. You might see him in the back. I mean, did check out this thing there. I can tell you where they are in the second season. They're like behind a panel in a closet next to the water heater. Um, but, the gun the gun the guns in the first season are used to better dramatic effect they're like well placed and not a constant presence and i think that's the tone the show needs to go to but did you guys have any more thoughts on the pilot because the second episode we watched is probably my favorite episode of the series really and i wanted to get to that i love on ginger i i the episode um because first of all it's i think they introduce mandy milkovich in the second episode but Man, I love Jane Levy. Well, I was going to say, Muffish.
2: I wrote that down. I was like, so people watching Shameless knew about Jane Levy way before those of us who, oh, yeah. who discovered her on Suburgatory. That's
1: that's why I watched Suburgatory, because I was like, Jane Levy's really funny. And I wouldn't... Her casting on Suburgatory, I'd say it hurt the show, uh, Shameless, but not significantly, but definitely noticeably, because they recast her with a girl who has a similar, like, face to her and they make her up to look almost like Jane Levy but she's a lot taller Jane Levy is secretly short and kind of st- like has short legs okay. um and they cast like a more willowy girl a very similar face but she's also British and does a terrible American accent <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, it, and they really had to like cut down Mandy's role in the second season and I think that kind of hurt the show a little bit because I really like Mandy the first um the second episode the the pilot isn't, doesn't really have a lot of plot. The show doesn't really have a lot of plot in general. I think it tends to be a character study of a family with, like, challenge of the poverty of the week challenges. Um, G- the plot of Aunt Ginger is that the woman who owns the house they live in is their great-aunt or their, Frank's aunt, Ginger, and she's not actually alive, um, but she, the Social Security office believes she is. And so they need to come up with Aunt Ginger, so they, they take a a uh, an elderly person from an, a low-level old folks' home and have her pose as their aunt. And one of the reasons why I love this episode so much is because of the work that um, Emma Kenny gets to do as Debbie. Debbie, I think, is one of the better characters on the show.
0: Wait,
2: who's Debbie?
1: Uh, the little girl. Okay. And do you guys like Debbie? She's do you okay. hate? Do you hate that little girl, that that nine year old girl?
2: <laughs> I hate that nine year old girl. I hate her for being nine and young and having her whole life ahead of her. Ah!
1: No. I, I do think that of the kid actors, she's probably the most actorly. Like a lot of her, a lot of her dialogue, it's like she's a little more professional, I think, than the other actors. Or at the very least, she sounds a little more polished. But I think that kind of fits her character a little bit.
0: The, well, I think the character is supposed to be
1: the—I
0: I get the sense that she's the— She's the heart. The biggest schemer well, they, of, of the of She the might be the biggest and... schemer,
1: but the rest of the family cares more about Debbie than they do about anyone else. They care more about her than they care about Lip or Ian or Carl. Like, they, they sort of—the next episode after this, which we didn't watch— Debbie still sort of reeling from the loss of Aunt Ginger steals a baby and they all kind of rally around her. we like, they're mad at her, but they're like, well, this is sort of our fault that she doesn't have a good life and she's acting out. Um, I also think that the note, they play the note a couple of times and I picked Aunt Ginger because one, I think it's a really good standalone episode, but it also informs a lot of what Debbie does through the rest of the series where she is probably the one more than anyone else that longs for a traditional family, especially strong motherly figures. And it's a. They play that really effectively. She's always the first one to, like, act as if things are normal and, like, a keep calm and carry on sort of way. You know?
0: Definitely. Uh, she, she. She's in some way the most, uh. I wouldn't say sorry, empathetic, but the most, uh. Okay, I I think the, she's the I think wonders. she's also
1: the most redeemable of any of the Gallagher's. If any of them are going to make it out of there, it's her.
0: Could be. It's well, you can definitely tell it's not going to be the the younger son. It's not going to be uh, Carl. The you mean Carl.
1: sociopath? The cat he, torture? Yes, Carl. I was about to say sociopath. They they veer away from the actual cat torture. I don't think they like ever bring that up again, uh, because that's a note people hate. Uh, people don't like torturing animals, although he does sh- – I'm going to spoil s- season
0: – So he just transitions to torturing other children at school. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and I'm going to spoil season two. Well, that just shows you where American sensibility is like. In season two, episode 11, he shoots a bald eagle with a uh, with an Uzi uh, in one of the shows, the goofier things they've ever done. Uh, but Car- Carl's a total psycho.
0: Okay, you could have sold me on the show with Shoots a Bald Eagle with an easy. <laughs> right? that's, that's really there's all running, that, yes, I need There's this running plot. This if you
1: told
2: me that, I would have been like, oh, no, not my show. There's,
1: there's a running plot where Carl really wants a gun because he's jealous that his friend Little Hank has a gun. It, it's a thing. Uh, they try to eat. The, Kev wants to cook the eagle for Thanksgiving dinner, um, and Steve won't have it. It's a thing. It actually kind of works for me. But that was actually in Season 2, Episode 11, so that's a ways away. By then, you're sort of all in or all out on the show, I feel. Um, but... So,
2: one question I had about Episode 3 was that we skipped Episode 2?
1: Yeah. And therefore, the Frank-Sheila like thing
2: came out, and I was like, what? Who? What?
1: Oh. Like, yeah, I, mean, I realized— All I got I
2: realized... to set me up for Frank and Sheila in Episode 3 was a giant dildo in the previous liaison. and i'm like okay i think i know what's going on but perhaps i'd like a little more backstory
1: um yeah the i i skipped episode two because i didn't think it was a strong episode because i think that's the worst they ever were with sheila i feel like that's a plot out of the british show basically after eddie ditches them frank as a grifter is looking for a roof and hot meals and money So he moves in with Sheila because Sheila is an agoraphobic and can't leave the house and depends on him. Um, So she moves in. Sheila is also the mother of Lip's girlfriend or whatever you're calling her. Um, But part of the exchange there is that Sheila has some perverted tastes that include sticking a giant dildo up Frank's butt. uh, Which is sort of why Eddie also was not, not terribly worried about getting out of there. Um, that's a note. It feels like a very British thing to do, and I didn't like. I not that I'm against. No, I'm not against dildos and butts. It's whatever your thing is. I just I <laughs> no, thought I'm it was just cartoony. You just
2: offended anybody British.
1: <laughs> it's British humor. That's very British humor. Of like, yeah, well, you dildos, can stay here in the butt.
2: You... But. Yeah, that's British. If there's yeah, one right, thing that we stand right for in this podcast, what?
0: If there's one thing we stand for in this podcast, it's uh, it's your. Anti-British sentiment. <laughs> yes, uh, we fought one war already, our love for... and we'll keep them off our shores through our culture.
1: <laughs> um, so, but of that, of on Ginger. So, did you guys? I thought this episode, and maybe I'm wrong. I thought this episode is the perfect balance of super, really dark, shameless, but also the heart, the the heart underneath that crusty, charcoal-burnt blackness. And did you guys no Did doubt. you guys feel that?
0: I, I did. I thought that uh, there was a lot of heart in the episode. And it was in a very black comedy way that this was kind of an uh, insurance scam. But they do it in a way that they take advantage of an old mm-hmm. woman's Alzheimer's and really appreciate having and her th- at home. they really love on Ginger. Taking advantage of her in a very sentimental way. Now, one way. That, thing I got that,
2: worried about was at the end when there was the little thing on the TV about – you know, how she had returned to the old folks home and all that. And I'm thinking, uh, I really hope the caseworker doesn't watch this.
1: Oh, are you you serious? There's no consequences. Or I shouldn't say there are no consequences in Shameless, because the show actually does a pretty good job of taking little details from earlier in the season and then blowing them up. But uh, the show is never going to come down too hard on the Gallaghers. Um, I, uh, they get away with child abduction in the episode after this, so... Um I I really liked the montage where they're sort of making on ginger at home. I forget the song. What what was the song? It was a good cover. It was like a punk garage punk cover of a of a song that I really liked and now I can't remember it. I actually I forgot to write it down.
0: I I don't remember. I so I, could, I like that. I li- I I I like the music direction and show. It's all in that uh, same
1: sort of grindy guitar rock. It, it's there's a definite thematic um a theme they keep returning to.
0: Yeah. It's, it's the, the overall aesthetic of, of whoever the music supervisor is. It's just right up my, uh, right up my alley.
1: Yeah. I, I liked Um, it a lot. Uh, but now I want to talk about Laura Wiggins, who you're already familiar with Amy because she's an Athens native. Um,
2: yeah, every now and and then she shows up on local radio here.
1: (laughs) I think Karen, uh, Laura Wiggins, she used to go as Laura Slade Wiggins, which I think is a much better professional name than Laura Wiggins, but Karen is basically, uh, Laura Wiggins does a great job playing Karen as, like, the girl next door from hell, where (laughs) she's incredibly sweet, but really frank, like, and really vulgar. Like Probably, seeing the vulgar stuff coming out of her mouth is maybe funnier than when it comes out of Sheila's or Fiona's mouth. She really is the girl next door from hell, but She might be one of my favorite characters on the show. And she keeps getting topless throughout the show, just constantly. Um which is not if frankly, if you're doing toplessness power rankings for the show, I think it goes Laura Slade Wiggins over Emmy Ross based on the body of of their work.
2: Frequency or
1: your personal preference? General quality. General quality. Just just I think Quality so as far as, as
0: far as like the the lighting or the, the weighted, uh, direction weighted, of the scenes or as far as the uh, the assets. It's a, it,
1: it, there's a couple of things that go into it. There's a weighted thing where how much it happens, um, where the quantity, and you sort of multiply that by the quality by the storyline impact of it. She has some nudity in the in the last two episodes. That the last two episodes of this season or the last two or three go so pitch black and dark that it's kind of disturbing. But she goes kind of all out and gonzo in those episodes um, to really great effect. Uh,
0: so before we go any further into to Shameless, Dan, can at some point you give us the full formula for the uh, the weighting of topless rankings, the pseudo-method, the, pseudo it's, method, it's, the pseudo uh, algorithm per se? frequency
1: times storyline impact times how generally appealing I find the character to times, how generally attractive I find the actress, and it's very high for this show. The show casts a lot of eye candy. Um, there's
0: so all those factors are weighted equally. In
1: um, the yeah, there's there's some there's a little bit of there are some coefficients in there. Generally, I give a little more weight to frequency and how attractive I find the actress than I do storyline <laughs> impact. But. Uh, <laughs> But,
2: <laughs> okay, I want to tell you how this sounds to my female ears. Boobies, 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 boobies! boobies. That's pretty I, much what I'm hearing. I think her...
0: Boobies times .35. <laughs> boobies times 0.
1: .81. Well, I, I haven't sat down and written out, figured out the coefficients. I just know that I really like the job Laura Wiggins is doing as... And that character is really sweet and has a lot of heart in... The second season is great for her. She gets a lot. She gets the second season is almost as much her story as it is anyone else's. And I think that she's very funny and she doesn't take lips shit. You don't see a lot of that in these episodes, but she really doesn't take lips funny business. And she puts him through hell—a fair amount of hell—in uh, the end of the first and then the second season. So one thing that I really uh,
2: do like about the Karen character is that you can tell. She has the utmost sympathy for her mother and her mother's situation.
1: Yes. She's also... She has the highest variance, though, of best person, of, like, quality of person to, like, negative quality of things they do. She really is a troubled person. Um, And you don't get that so much in these, as you do later in the season. Like, I only... I... Shameless, the thing I realized about Shameless is that I realized I didn't know which episode stuff happened in. I just knew that like, I knew like 20 things that happened in the first season and I had no temporal place of when and where it was except for a few key things. And I realized that it's sort of a show you have to absorb and you have to sort of bathe in. Um, the, but I thought this episode also did besides doing a lot for Karen and Debbie, it did a lot for the Milkoviches. and the Milkoviches are fantastic. They're bizarro Gallaghers. They're great foils for the Gallaghers. They're like the demented McCoys to the desperate Hatfields. Um, especially given that uh, I, I, this is the episode with the scene between Mickey Milkovich and Lip, sort of the parlay on behalf of their two younger siblings, where um he feels that he he has to defend his younger sister's honor and lip has to point out that maybe there's not so much honor to defend although he can understand it but not really and i thought the Milkoviches are they're really good in that the show needs i wouldn't call them villains because (laughs) they're kind of doing the best they can out of a bad situation but the show needs adversaries and they're really great adversaries One of the things I think Shameless does also really well is that, like, there's a challenge, much like X-Files had Monsters of the Week, Shameless has, like, that day-to-day survival, like, what poverty challenge are we facing this week? And this is that Frank has been sort of scamming Social Security, and that causes problems, and they have to go through all these machinations, and in the end, they're right back where they started, basically, even though they've had to put all this work in. And I think that's one of the things about being poor because I probably identify, I identify with some aspects of shameless in that I'm a really poor early 20 something who kind of lives like hand to mouth with my own, like going to the grocery store. Like the other day I went to the grocery store and I bought two heads of lettuce and I went through uh, just two heads of lettuce. And I went through the self checkout because I think it would have been the saddest possible human interaction for me to pay for two heads of lettuce on a debit card and have that bring my balance down to like a buck fifty, you know, in front of another person, they so, don't
2: know your balance, Dan. You I know that, I right? know,
1: but,
0: but I know. <laughs> <laughs> Were you worried? Unless you're worried about it bouncing, in which case yeah, that's yes, when that you're worried about getting declined for uh, the head of lettuce. It only, yes.
1: it, only w- it only would have bounced if I wanted to buy a pack of gum or something, which I don't chew gum. So, um, the other thing this does is this episode does is really bring in kevin veronica a little bit and they might be my favorite characters on the show i love kevin veronica
0: yeah they're definitely uh, as as crazy as the the whole gallagher family is they're the even more crazy Um, they're they're crazy
1: uh, in a way but i think they're also probably they're they're a really healthy couple
0: kind of the crazy yeah, well, they're kind of the creamer to uh, the Gallagher's oh, Jerry. Oh, that... I think
1: it's the other way around. I feel like I feel like they're more Kevin, and Veronica are really more like Jerry. They're living kind of a normal life. Like they're just this couple that lives next door, and Veronica is friends with Fiona, and Kevin is constantly coming over to take back stuff they've borrowed and stuff. You know.
0: So they're they're like the is to the uh, the Gallagher Simpsons.
1: I'd say, Amy, how do you feel about Kevin, and Veronica? I like them oh you don't have <laughs> strong feelings
2: uh I think they're more interesting I think they get more interesting in a later episode
1: and we yeah and, uh, well,
2: i'll I'll chat about that then
1: yeah okay um I think the other thing is i I really think Shinola Hamilton as Ronka she's really gorgeous that's that's my like. Why hasn't she done more? Is my question. Is how oh, did how is this why like? Why she does first... more
2: topless
1: or? No 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 no. <laughs> um, I I think she's maybe topless once or twice in the series. I feel like she had the best nudity clause going in. Best for her. Um, she hadn't really done a lot of other things. I think before this, and. She's really funny and charming and she doesn't take any of Kev's shit. Kev is so dumb, but he's a like a lovable goof. And she doesn't take any of his crap, but she loves him anyway. You never you never wonder why is she with him because Kev is Kev is probably the best person on the show. He really just wants to do well and be nice and he likes the Gallaghers even if they irritate him. Um, the scene in on ginger where he like walks in in his boxers in an open robe into the Gallagher's kitchen during breakfast time and just starts ribbing on Steve is so funny to me
0: where he and also speak, going back to nudity causes, he probably has the worst of, <laughs> of the, or the, the weakest of them because in the pilot, there's a, a huge scene where
1: uh, he is hanging out for everyone to see.
2: How I don't, did I not you notice know. this?
1: I don't know. It God. that's the scene where no that's the scene where um I no I so think it's on Ginger. Crisis. It it's because Lip has Lip has jumped out of the window um and sprained his ankle and Veronica's patching him up and she sends Ian the closeted gay boy to go get the um supplies and uh smokes and, smokes, and Kev is just lying spread eagle on the bed dangling for all the world to see when ian walks in and kev's just like hey you know give me one of those before you go and just totally naked the whole time
2: so we are officially at the point where i don't even recognize it anymore that's good to know
1: (laughs) you know what i he, he acquits himself well i'll say that um the uh then the end of the episode basically the two main plots they're they they gotta find Aunt Ginger and Debbie bonds with Aunt Ginger and it's sort of all the sadder when they have to send her back. But I kind of love the way that when they're talking about sending her back, they talk about her like a stray dog. Like, oh, absolutely. She doesn't belong to us. You can visit her. You know, the show is really mercenary, but the show is really tender. You know, at times. And also the whole the other plot, the B plot is Ian, or it's like a sub A plot is Ian getting hunted down by the Milkoviches. But in the end, he tells Mandy he's gay and they come to this alliance where Mandy is his beard to prevent any suspicion that he might be gay. And in return, she doesn't have to, uh, sleep around. She doesn't feel the pressure to sleep around and she's getting positive male interaction, which is something she hasn't had. And I thought it's really surprisingly sweet in that these are two people who have nothing going for them, um... But they sort of are making the best of it with each other. Um, I should just mention the bat is, like, my fifth favorite gallagher. It, it does a really good job. The baseball bat? Oh, yeah. They, they're they constantly grabbing it and using it. Like, all these episodes. I forgot how often it gets pulled off the the, the nail it hangs on. Um, they Why actually, it is, is sort of Chekhov's bat. bat. They eventually do beat the crap out of people with it. Um, that Why actually do you you happens. a bat on a nail? What?
2: How do you hang a bat
1: on a nail? Well, it has like a leather strap on oh, it. Oh,
2: okay.
1: It's like this very worn, crappy baseball bat. Um, the other thing I want to mention, the other thing I want to get to is there's a, I, there's a Burn notice aspect to the show in that Burn Notice gives you these little like how-to spy lessons. Oh, like, I was going to say, and Shameless, What? And Shameless shows you all the little tips and tricks and corner cutting and scamming that they use to get by. And I actually made a... a a possibly incomplete list of all the stuff we saw over this six episodes. There's a, there's a tag gun for returning clothes, uh, putting tags back on, picking up shifts anywhere you can through your social networks, adding water to the milk. They do that like uh, subtly, like a bunch of times through the first couple episodes where they'll like, they'll shake the milk bottle and just add a bunch of water to it. Um, taking the SATs for kids for money, social security fraud, Stealing an old lady to pose as a dead aunt, uh, writing papers for money, posing as parents for PTA meetings, bribing school officials with marijuana, wiping your butt with party streamers, um, doing medical trials and taking temp jobs, scamming free diapers and taking in a foster child for the money. Those were all like the various ways in which that they're just sort of trying to, to make the debits and credits balance up.
2: Well, that's one but, thing I uh, really like about the Fiona character is that we constantly see her, like in episode, in the second episode we watched, we saw her at a food truck. I think it was either in the first or second episode, we saw her at a food truck. And then later on, we see her as a waitress in a bar. And it's like, you, you really kind of get the sense that even though they are kind of skating around the poverty line, they're not indolent.
1: No, they're they're working hard. No, they're very well, hardworking to stay they're at working this level, hard working I say they're working hard but it's
2: mostly fault Fiona's the only one that's not in school and that's actually a credit to all of them that for instance lip hasn't dropped out of school yet
1: well in in the second season you find out that Fiona actually did drop out when her mother left um, well, but
2: I'm, I mean I'm just saying you know for the oldest child to do that sure right yeah. but it's kind yeah. of impressive that she's been able to keep the rest of them from having to
1: do so yeah um...
0: And as you say, they're so functional together as a unit. There's as, as whatever, however we want to say the terrible people they are, whatever, they really care for each other and they're really working together to make it work.
1: Yeah. Um, and I, uh, so getting into the, we only have twenty more minutes, so we're going to, we, but we've discussed a lot of major points about the show. Season one, episode six, Killer Carl. This is a, another good, like, standalone episode in that, it addresses something, and this is another and wall and uh Feinberg point, is just how much damage is this life doing to the kids? Um we saw it a little bit with Debbie in the previous episode on Ginger, but we get it here a lot with Carl and Karen. Specifically Carl in that The psychopath. Carl Carl is about is is, is two strikes beyond getting expelled from school because he's violent. He made a paper mache turd. When asked like to make a papier-mâché statue about himself, um, and that's basically the plot of this episode is parent-teacher conferences. Like Frank winds up going with Karen for her parent-teacher conference uh, because she's never felt comfortable with her father and she hates she hates uh, Freddie Rumson. and um, and uh, Fiona is trying to keep Carl from being expelled from the school. And see,
2: this is the moment where I really kind of, like, that's a moment where I really turned on Frank. Because yeah. I felt like, okay, so you're willing to suck it up and go be, you know, dad to this kid that's not your kid for the woman you're stepping, But you're not interested in actually going and being the parent to your own kid who is it, in serious need of you being there.
1: But that's, it's also, Frank is, we're not supposed to like Frank. Frank well, is... and that's
2: the moment where I was like, oh okay, so I'm not supposed to like Frank
1: <laughs> Well Frank we're supposed you' you're supposed to wonder why no one has killed Frank and then occasionally realize why this and this is also an episode where there are guys looking to kill Frank or at least rough him up there's a subplot where Frank is owes some guys like six thousand dollars for a car insurance scam which is sort of perfect in that it's sort of low stakes like that's not a ton of money but it's more money than anyone on the show ever has a chance of coming up with. Right. And I thought that was a good price point for the scam. <laughs> um, um,
2: and that was, a, that's the scene I was referring to earlier when he's running away from those guys. That yeah. was a brilliant bit of physical comedy. And I mean, there is a certain kind of shiftless criminal where you have to stay in shape.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, you don't have to if necessarily it, stay in, like, like you're not a gym bunny or anything, but you gotta be able to outrun the people chasing well, you.
1: Well, Frank's drinking more dinners than he's eating, so I don't think he's ever gonna be uh, overweight. But, um, I you said you had uh, Sheila stuff you wanted to talk about with this episode.
2: Well, uh, first I just, the, when she's speaking Hungarian at the front, that just, I'm like Joan Cusack speaking Hungarian and making funny faces while she does it. I'll laugh at that every time. Go ahead. Yeah. Do that more. And that was good.
1: That was um, very good. But
2: then the scene at the end where Frank has gone back to her house after the parent-teacher conference and yeah. he's telling her about what the parent, what the teacher said about Karen. In that yes. moment, your heart really breaks for Sheila because in a lot of ways they play her agoraphobia, like you say, kind of cartoony and over-exaggerated and all that. But for people who actually do have this kind of anxiety disorder, and I've known a couple of friends whose moms had this kind of anxiety disorder where they didn't want to leave the house, you see how it, her heart is breaking right there. And it's almost like he's telling her a fairy tale about yeah. some land that she'll never get to visit because her eyes are shining, but she's sad at the same time. And that, I, just, I that, that scene killed me. I loved. That I have
1: scene. In, I have in my notes that that's basically the best she ever is on the show, and it's really good. And they. I wish they. I get why the show doesn't go to sappy wells with the characters all that often, but when they do, they pick their spots. They do it well, and I also think in an episode where you really hate Frank, you sort of he is sort of sympathetic. He takes advantage of Sheila, but he is sort of sympathetic in that moment to her, and I think that counts for a lot for me. Um, well, so, I mean,
2: I mean, and you could sort of make the argument that then, well, Fiona, he knew that Fiona had it covered with killer Carl, but this was something he could do for Sheila that no one else could.
1: You're you're fan-wanking it. He didn't care about Carl. In the first episode, he says, I don't know that much about Carl when he's describing Carl. Well, so but I'm just saying, he doesn't feel
2: any need to go do that for Carl. You know, he feels mm-hmm. no... Obligation there, but he does recognize a chance to do something nice for Sheila.
1: And the fact that Karen was, like, thrilled to have Frank be there is another one of those, like, oh, she's kind of screwed up and it's sad, but she's happy and you're happy that she's happy, but it's really sad that she's pulling esteem from Frank. Yeah. A- and, um, the other, uh, the other thing I wanted to get to is I love, love, love the little scene between, um, the principal in Steve, uh, where he realizes that the principal's a total pothead, and sort of they the, 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 the how they get Carl out of trouble is Frank pulls him aside, or uh, Steve pulls him aside, and basically is like, Look, I'll hook you up with some really sweet weed. But the story he tells is the. I, it's not as good as the Jay Landsman dangerously close to a wrecked story, but it's in that same vein. I really enjoyed it. I, I have two other notes on this episode. Ranty Frank, when Frank goes on his sort of diatribes, that's funny to me because it gives Bill Macy a chance to play outsized and manic. But there's sort of this undertone where you don't know if he really believes what he's saying. And sometimes he I think he just want, rages, wants to rage and rage. He has this like persecution complex and this malformed populism, but like this blue collar right of centerness. And it's sort of, it's sort of demented, but I, and everyone around him just sort of ignores him when he does it. He does those rants in the alibi room, the bar a lot, and you just see everyone kind of rolling their eyes. I, it's a funny, it's a funny scene for for William H Macy to do. And um, the other thing is, my biggest complaint about the show is how much they bend reality with Sheila's virtual reality goggles. But I have a note on it, and it's that. Shameless has, like, an interesting relationship with technology because they're all so poor and have no resources that, like, this technology is almost mystical to them. And so they can sort of get away with lapses in reality because they have, like, it's, it's almost magic to them. But it was still pretty bad.
0: I'm not going to argue that, but I would say that one of the things that is, is nice is the casting of the phone that the, the Gallagher share a... Phone. It's an old. <laughs> it's like a flip phone. They're on a pay per
1: minute plan.
0: They're they're very conscious of, of their minutes. It, and, in the uh, second
1: season, Fiona gets a smartphone or something, and I swear it's just product placement. Like it, you know, it's. I was like, oh, I missed the old phone. But season one, episode eight, it's time to kill the turtle. I think it's either this or Aunt Ginger was the best episode I had you guys watch.
2: Oh wait, I have so, one thought about one final thought about Killer Carl, which was oh, I wrote Carl, down yes. I wrote Too down late. in all caps. What is it with us watching shows with traumatic knee injuries? <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: they, should uh, that be like Carl, a
2: criterion from here on out?
1: Lip is getting hung. Out well, of
0: that's what nose. this series is. This is all about the shows, the uh, television featuring traumatic <laughs> knee injuries. Ser- watching series.
1: <laughs> well, at least no one got their heart ripped out like in The Vampire Diaries.
0: Yes. Come yes. On. Well, I don't know.
1: You guys, There's still a season finale tonight. You guys tonight. haven't seen season two. Um, so season one, episode eight, it's time to kill the turtle. The basic plot, the B plot is that, uh, or it's sort of an A plot. It all mixes together really that Frank is such an alcoholic that they've never seen anyone that alcoholic survive in the wild. So they want to monitor him and he gets $3,000 if he can be sober for two weeks in a medical trial. And it turns out this is the episode that I had you guys watch that really makes you understand what appeal Frank Gallagher has for anyone actually living around him. Like, you can see this is the episode that makes you go, oh, he isn't totally incorrigible. Um, But what did you guys think of seeing Frank Gallagher as functional?
0: It it was definitely a different shading for the character. It was interesting to see that, especially if this had come in uh, as kind of the eighth episode we had seen versus the fourth. Yeah. Uh, you spend more time with him really being not a great person you see that if he comes out of the alcohol he's like functional he's caring he's considerate and almost too much actually entirely too much for his family they were they're so the damaged America- and
1: that they've learned to cope without him that now they can't go back and they're afraid to go back because they know it'll end
0: right well it's not so much that it's they they can't cope with him without it. It's that they know it's not going to
1: last. And that's why it's that. so tragic to me. That it's a, this is a really tragic episode to me, in a way, because it get, it's getting Carl and Debbie's it hopes up, you know?
2: Um,
0: yeah, whereas uh, uh, Fiona and Lip have lived through this before.
2: Well, and that's where, actually, to me, even though I've said before that Lip kind of has that uh, chip on his shoulder, to me in this... He's so cynical, mechanism. but it's entirely earned.
1: It's a defense mechanism, and the the little parable he tells about Walter the Turtle is both so true, like, you can imagine that happening in real life, but it's so sad, and that's where the name comes from, basically, is, at a certain point, it's a bad metaphor, and the joke that it's a bad metaphor is in the show, but they have they end up pouring vodka down Frank's throat because they just know nothing good will come It's only going to hurt them more when he goes back to drinking, so we might as well get it out of the way with. But one of the other details I like, that even though he's capable in these episodes, this episode, he still has to, like, pull Gallagher bartering shenanigans to get them those pancakes and bacon and orange juice. Like, he had to trade somebody something who worked at, like, a Denny's. Like, it's, you know, nothing comes easy, even when Frank is totally non-alcoholic. This, the main B-plot in this episode is the Kevin-Veronica thing that I probably should have focused more on. Kevin-Veronica is super cartoony, Kevin-Veronica adopting a foster child who turns out to be a refugee from a religious sex cult. Um, But it's really funny seeing Kev get excited to be a dad in his just all-out, earnest, goofy way, and Veronica coming around on it.
2: Well, and like that—that um, that was yeah. what I was going to say about them—is that I actually kind of liked Kevin a little better than Veronica out of that, because yeah, Veronica I, I was I so cynical. Yeah, I mean, not cynical. That's not the word. Right, she was so calculating. No, i,
0: I think cynical is—is is really the word. She's so yeah, calculating. She's doing it. And she is doing it, it
2: entirely for the money. Whereas Kevin, especially once he realizes the situation that this girl has come out of, I mean, I think they were sort of expecting some kind of like. Inner city punk that they were going to have to lock in the room so they wouldn't steal everything they own. And when instead it's this, I think that really ignited some human side to Kevin, but shut Veronica down a little bit.
1: And the other thing I'll say is Ethel actually turns out to be a recurring character. She's, she's, uh, she continued on into the second season, and it's a really good arc for Kevin Veronica, and, um, I'll tell you, Veronica comes around a lot on on Ethel, and it and it also She's gives them to by
2: the end of this episode.
1: But it also gives them notes to play off of. Of this is a couple that's approaching, like settling down a little bit, and they're. Um, I think it's good notes to play off of, but it's also kind of a twist on the like. You know, oh, the, you know, it's a sitcom thing. They The couple has to watch a kid for the weekend or they get a dog and it makes them realize they are ready to have kids. And this is sort of a twisted. They end up with a girl who's a refugee from a sex cult. And but it's they do really funny stuff with it in the second season. I know I keep saying second season, but this is a show where I, I think I tweeted last night when I was watching episode 11 it might be making the leap. Like if I had to guess, it's probably not in the top 10 shows, my of my favorite shows on television, but it's definitely in that second in like the 10 to 15 range, you know, it's no mad men, breaking bad, uh, Cougar town, game of Thrones, uh, community thing. But it's, you know, it's like a really demented version of parenthood. And uh, you know, there's a lot of merit to that. Well,
0: and and i I think one of the other things about uh I was realizing this before is about frankci is that part of it I think one of the reasons that she is so cynical and that you kind of see is that it's uh a matter of hoping that uh, i i kind of sensing that they're at a certain point in their lives and maybe wanting more than just uh taking in a kid for money
1: and just another note on the frank being a good father i don't know if you guys caught this the book frank is reading to the kids is the hunger games i totally missed that the first time i watched the show yes and he's actually reading dialogue from the thing he's talking about like tracker jackers and it's just funny to see william h macy as as frank gallagher saying tracker jackers and it it was very good um there are two there's another two subplots on this episode beyond just the ethel thing i want to talk about Turns out Mickey Milkovich is a uh, is gay in the me-think-thou-doth-protest-too-much-bully note that a lot of shows play. Um, and he and Ian start hooking up. So uh, Mandy Milkovich is the beard while uh, Ian and her brother are hooking up. And I I don't know if you guys thought that was a little too on the nose. I think it's actually an okay thing they do with the characters.
2: I wasn't sure if it was that he was gay or it's more just like uh, kind a of a power thing. Yeah, he'll he'll get it where he can. Um, I I think and they make that the, he can bully this kid into doing that.
1: I think I I actually get more that it's sort of actually Ian taking a little bit of power back and that yeah Mickey's gruff around the edges but. Um, that there's a there's they you know there's chemistry there and to be fair those actors play the chemistry pretty well.
2: I, my I problem always... with Mickey is that he looks like he's in zombie makeup. I mean like in the oh. first episode we met him in. Yeah. Oh my god! I'm like, did they bring this kid over from The Walking Dead? What's going on? Do you or... know
1: what? You want to know something that yeah. really screwed me up? Um, Mickey Milkovich, played by, uh, oh, IMDb control F Mickey Noel Fisher really really um he sort of looks like um the guy who plays moriarty in the bbc sherlock series andrew scott like they sort of have a similar facial structure and it really screwed me up the first time i saw it (laughs) i'm like is that the guy who played jim moriarty and it you know it would have been funny if it was the same guy but it's not um so that that went nowhere but the other thing that this show kind of unspools is Steve is living a double life. Da, da, da. Uh, I, can I want me to want me to make the show better for you now? They do almost nothing with that. Okay, good. They, Although that one, gets... one
2: thing I did like out of that subplot was the whole discovery of the phone and Candace and whatever. And then when she's talking to Kevin Veronica later, and she says, "You know, he says it's just someone that he works with," and and i love how kev just cuts through it all and says believe him or don't
1: yeah but also—that's like, also...
2: i love that answer you know like and, how and... much drama could women avoid if they just went with
1: believe him or don't or the <laughs> other the other thing i like is that he gives sort of like a dr phil answer and veronica's like oh and he's like hey fatherhood brings it out in me and it was a really kev is really charming i love kev he's Probably my favorite character on the show, and that and that and that goes above Emmy Rossum. And I think it's, I tend to love supporting characters a little more because he he only get, has to do things when they're good things to do. Um, but uh, the other thing I like, and it's a good note, is Fiona has another subplot in this episode about her maybe wanting more professionally, career wise, where she winds up at this. Um, powerpoint class that can help her get a an office job and she just quits on it immediately and that's reminds you that for as awesome as fiona is at holding this family together she's more capable than she is actually smart and she has not a lot she does not have a lot of confidence and that's you know these characters have flaws and i i thought that was a really good note for her to play
2: well, the other thing I liked about that is, you know, since the show is kind of focusing on, okay, what is it really like to be at this point in the poverty line? You know, the other, she sits,
1: below the when she line. sits
2: down in the class and the instructor's like, so how many of you know Word? How many of you know Excel? Okay. And everybody's hands raises except hers, but the teacher doesn't stop and pay attention to that. And then she says, okay, so you're going to go to your Microsoft and just take so much for granted about what the people in the class know. And you see that there is a point where you are just so far behind the curve that you're There's never no going to catch up. up. And and, and how crushing sort of, that is.
1: And, the, and that's sort of a good note of, like, Fiona is sacrificing so much for this. Because I thought she was, as good as she was in that scene, she was even better in the scene where she takes a shift at a, uh, she picks up somebody's shift at, like, a Hooters knockoff. Yeah. Where they, what do they call it? Uh, boobs and I don't know. It, it's some. They have Veronica has a pithy name for it, but it's basically uh, she has to get hooched up at a sports bar in like a cheerleader outfit and eye black. And the show takes a fair number of opportunities to play dress up with Emmy Rossum, but they used it well here. When Fiona looks and sees the sort of wrinkling, aging waitress with maybe a little bit of work done. And Fiona sort of sees herself there, and when she has to deal with these really scummy guys, and she comes home and sort of dumps this pile of dollar bills on the counter and just starts crying, you can see what this life is taking out of her, and how it is hard on her. And she, but she doesn't want the kids to know and see that. So, I I thought that was Emmy Rossum did really well. She and she's not the focus of this episode, but she did really well in those two scenes and that's and that's i think probably the first time in the series that i was like oh man she is she's doing subtle things she's doing big things like uh getting plowed on a kitchen counter and that's you know its own level of performance but just sort of playing this sort of weary sadness this accumulated uh brunt of depressing i'm never getting out of this life is it was really good for her um and uh, besides that, um, this episode, I think the, the neighborhood and like the bar has like a baked in knowledge of and disdain for Frank that sort of helps make the world feel lived in like everyone here knows Frank and they all know his scams and schemes and they just want none of it. And I, th- I think that's a good thing. Frank is for an episode that's about Frank being at his best. He, it's like the first episode in that he's basically a prop. You know, it's characters reacting to Frank as opposed to Frank really doing much. Good point. Um, and and that's shameless. So we have <laughs> beaten it to death, but in I'll the watch, end,
2: I will watch more. I mean, especially because since as it was much as I was much teased for on Twitter, I actually went to a video store and rented DVDs. In order to watch this well that means i've got eight episodes sitting here of which i've only watched four so i'm going to go back and watch those other four episodes and i may pick up the other discs when i return these
1: um so i like it well enough to watch more oh sorry
0: i actually i definitely would watch more i i really enjoyed the show i think it is one of the better commentaries on uh what it is to live below the poverty line in america today uh, and kind of in the flip side way of what The Wire does in that it's, much, it's not about urban poverty. It's about – well, it is about urban poverty since they are in Chicago, but it's not about drug culture. Right, or, the, or, or necessarily the even they're...
2: like
1: completely focused on criminal. Dr- all, I picked episodes that were decidedly less criminal. There's a lot of criminal activity and okay. a lot of drugs and stuff in other episodes. Um, but is it is it drug-related? It's, it's not – the show doesn't focus on drugs. It's like, oh – it Kev secretly has a huge marijuana warehouse underneath the bar and has to give it up because Veronica made him promise to stop. And the second season opens basically with the Gallaghers and Kev operating an ice cream truck that sells ice cream and snacks and also like pot and like contra other contraband out of the truck. And it's, it's sort of the second season is really wonderful. Um, the first season, if you like these, you probably like the other episodes of the first season. Especially, the la- I'll, I'll warn you, the last two or three of the first season can be really vicious. And, but I think they swerve away from that a lot in early on in the second season, and the second season is really phenomenal. Um, but I, I hope you guys watch more because I really enjoy this show. Uh, it, I. Sometimes I will let the episode sit on my hard drive for a few days, but then when I watch it, I'm like, why didn't I watch this right away on Sunday night? You know, even though I have Mad Men and, uh, and Game of Thrones and all this great stuff. Uh, I, I always regret not watching it immediately.
0: Yeah. I, I'm definitely going to watch it more. Um, I'm been watching this on Showtime's, uh, equivalent of HBO. Oh, Go, oh they're on, on demand. Uh, the iPad, uh, it's Showtime anytime. And, uh, it was telling me before that the season one episodes are expiring off of it on the third, which would be Tuesday, so I may uh, I may not watch the rest of uh, season one unless those come back on the future point. If, but if you I'm...
1: if you feel like you have time to watch more, watch from eight onward and then catch up with the early episodes. I'd because that way you can get into the second season a little because you don't need you could jump right into the second season. But I think that the closing arc of season one is very good, if not, if very extreme. (laughs) And I'm trying not to spoil it because it is so deranged when you first see it. Although I think the show is fairly spoiler-proof. Another thing I meant to mention two hours ago, but I forgot. I really love the intro sequence of this show. Between the song and the... uh, and, and just the, the single fixed shot of all the characters trapezing their way through the bathroom or traipsing through the bathroom. Uh,
0: It'd be way cool if they were trapezing. <laughs> yeah,
1: they're traipsing. They're not trapezing. They're traipsing.
0: But it, it is a great scene because it introduces you a little bit of the character, a little bit of the uh, the anarchy that is the, the Gallagher household. Yeah, I can't believe we went and... two hours
1: without saying anarchy. The show is very anarchic.
0: <laughs> yes, Definitely so, and uh, it's just a really quality no. song, yeah. and uh, I, which seems like a great note to uh, bring this to an end on. Unless anyone else. Well, the only gonna thing like I was going to say, gonna say
2: was that to me the show, um, I mean, yes, it's about poverty, but to me it's way more about what it's like living with an alcoholic as the head of your family. Yes, I mean, like I, I definitely think you can't ignore the poverty side of it, but I mean, a lot of times those two things go hand in hand. Um yeah. but I mean, just you know having known enough families that are dealing with an alcoholic as the head of the household, you know, this is so true as to how the kid the oldest kid ends up raising the other kids. Do you, you know... think the
1: show gets into like alcoholic dad minstrel show territory, or do you think it's fairly inoffensive? It's like not gonna offend people's sensibilities. Well, that, I, don't like, think oh, well, I mean
2: because that's the thing is that a lot of the times... show is going to
1: offend people the show is offensive but well, i mean because a it lot of times the
2: reason way. that you put up with the drunk and you don't just cast them out on the street is because when they're drunk they're fun when they're sober they're sweet and you love them you know and i think there's certainly that going on that you get the sense that it's like well yeah he's a drunk but he's our drunk and, and I, I th- to me, that's that's the more interesting dynamic than necessarily the poverty is the alcoholism.
1: So and uh, that I, I've 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 i I got I hit every bullet point on uh, on my list, unlike with the Vampire Diaries podcast, where I left about a thousand words on the table because I left <laughs> early.
2: Um, All right. Well, you had to leave early.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Buzz, Rant, and Rave podcast. Thanks also to my guests, Dan Suter, who you can find on Twitter at Naked Baby Photos. Seriously. Amy Watts, who you can find blogging at the Baltimore Sun's TV Lust site about dancing with the stars this season on Twitter at Amy Watts or behind the reference desk. For more information about the show, please visit us at buzzrantrave.com slash podcast or just buzzrantrave.com. You can find me on Twitter at Andrew Raff. At me or email me from uh, the website to get your free uh, prize for listening to this entire podcast. And also if you're interested in being a guest or uh, something on a future version. Until next time, thank you.